This is the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, and we are in Paris for SASTA Europa this week. And if you'd like to see behind the scenes, you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But to our episode today, and an individual that I've learned so much from in the past, both personally and through his writing. And so I could not be more thrilled to welcome back Dave Kellogg to the hot seat today. Now, Dave, and a little background on him, he's a leading technology executive, independent board member, advisor, and angel investor. In his most recent role, Dave was the CEO at Host Analytics where he quintupled ARR, halved customer acquisition costs, and increased net retention rates before selling the company to a private equity sponsor. Before that, Dave was SVP and GM of Service Cloud at Salesforce, where he led the $500 million line of business for customer service applications. And finally, pre-Salesforce, Dave was CEO at MarkLogic, where he grew the team from 40 to 240, and revenues from nothing to an 80 million revenue run rate. And if that wasn't enough, Dave's currently or has previously been on the boards of Nuxio, Asta Data and Granular. But before we dive into the episode today, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Well, Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection, join them and learn more about the true value of social at SproutSocial.com. And speaking about the power and importance of connection, I want to talk about Sapling, the new people operations platform taking the community by storm. Hundreds of companies including Envision, Cruise, Kayak and DigitalOcean are raving about Sapling and its ability to streamline HR, create a red carpet employee experience and empower people operations teams with the connectivity, data and insights to improve employee happiness, productivity and turnover. And best yet, listeners of Sasta Podcast get three months of sapling free whilst this offer lasts. So if you're tired of wasting time managing HR in spreadsheets and repetitive manual workflows, or if you're just wishing you had one system to manage your global workforce, head on over to saplinghr.com slash sasta to sign up and see why leading teams are making the switch. That's saplinghr.com forward slash sasta and start empowering your talent to reach their potential through the power of automation, connectivity and talent insights powered through sapling today. And last but not least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. This time we'll hear from Justin Goodhue, founder and CEO at Trellis. Trellis is an event management platform for charities and non-profits. Trellis enables event organizers to easily build beautiful event and fundraising pages to sell tickets, collect donations, and automate their workflows. Hi, Harry. When you build out your product, you should just know that it's going to take twice as long as you think. And you might be shaking your head right now disagreeing with me, but I guarantee you the first time you do it, it's going to take you twice as long. That list of features, just cut it in half. Cut it in half again. Find out exactly what it is your customer wants and just build that. The other stuff, they can wait. So make sure you give yourself the extra time, money, and runway to be successful. Thank you, Justin. Taking the time needed is important to make sure you grow. You can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, you've heard quite enough of me droning on. And so now I'm very, very excited to hand over to the wonderful Mr. Dave Kellogg. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. 
Dave, I have to say, it is such a joy to have you back on the show today. As you know, I loved our first episode, so I'm so thrilled we can make this happen. Thank you so much for joining me again today, Dave. Thanks, Terry. It's a pleasure to be here. I had a great time on our first show, too. Well, I would love to start there with a little bit about you. So for the people that made the cardinal sin of missing our round one, tell me, Dave, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS? And what was that starting point for you? Well, Harry, I've been doing enterprise software for over 25 years. Of note, I was the CMO at Business Objects uh, over a nine-year period as we grew from 30 million in revenue to a billion in revenue. I was CEO of MarkLogic, a NoSQL database that we grew from zero to 80 million over a six-year period. I did a year at Salesforce where I ran the service cloud. Most recently, I was CEO of Host Analytics, an EPM company focused on financial planning and analysis where we grew the company more than 5X during a six-year period. I also sit on several boards and have sat on boards of various enterprise software companies. I mean, some incredible tenures at some fantastic companies there, Dave. But the thing that really, really interests me especially, is the macro environments that you saw whilst being at those companies. So I do have to ask, having seen the market volatility of the boom and the bust, how do you think that really impacted your operating mentality and how you think today, Dave? Yeah, I got two stories for you here, Harry. One, in 2008, I had the good fortune to be in the front row of the famous Sequoia Rest in Peace Good Times meeting. I was CEO of MarkLogic and that was a Sequoia company. And we were all convened to Sandhill Road on short notice, put into a room, and basically 56 Six slides of doom and gloom were thrown at us. And the basic message, one of the quotes was, cut as deep as you can possibly imagine, then cut deeper. Literal quote. And I remember thinking in the room that this is weird because every company is in a different situation here. There's $100 million profitable businesses. There's two guys who just raised their A round who've got 24 months of runway. Why are we all getting the same advice? So one of my things about boom and bust is you have to figure out if it's going to affect you. If you were hard, very focused on financial services, 2008, you were in a lot of trouble. If you were focused on other markets, maybe it had a, only a modest impact. So my first thing is, you know, be situational. The second rule I've taken from Boom and Bust is don't get greedy. You know, in 2001, you could raise money pretty easily at pretty high valuations. And in 2002, there were two types of companies. Those who had raised large amounts of money at crazy valuations in 2001 and dead, right? And, and there was nothing in between. So I think companies need to boom, not get greedy. You know, I I know a story of a company that was offered $40 million of more than 12x revenue, and they actually cut the round down and took only 20. And while that may prove brilliant, you never know in that case what's going to work out. If it doesn't prove brilliant, if there is a bust, they sure would love to have that other 20 million in the bank. And the incremental dilution at 12x is so small, you really need to think hard about are you being reasonable when it comes to fundraising and valuation. I totally love that rationale. But I do have to ask, and this is off schedule, so very unfair of me, but Reid Hoffman always says kind of when the money's on the table, take it. You don't know what's going to happen. I'm never sure about that. Honestly, I clip between the two sides. Which side do you stand on whether when the money's there, take it? Is that right or not right, do you think? Yeah. So my glib answer is I have my own two rules of fundraising. And the first rule is when is the right time to raise money? Answer now. How much money should you raise as much as possible? So I think I'm more on Reed's side of this. I mean, look, as an operator, if you're able to raise money, it means you've probably had four solid quarters. And what you're actually thinking is, can I stack on four more good ones and limit dilution? Or should I just take the money now? That's the actual bet you're making as an operator. If you're certain you're going to have one or two good quarters, okay. But most companies, most startups can't see out four quarters. So to me, you're actually taking quite a bit of risk because if you miss one of those quarters and you miss it badly, that round may no longer be available. It's a little bit more binary than you think. So I think I'm more in Reed's camp. No, I totally agree. Can I ask, how do you handle kind of valuation limits? Obviously, if you raise as much as possible, you can get quite lofty valuations, especially in frothy environments. 
How do you think about outpricing yourself for next round and making that next round even more challenging? Is that a concern? Yeah, I mean, it is definitely a concern. To me, it's a secondary one. You know, my driving principle on all this is Don Valentine's famous quote, all companies go out of business for the same reason. They run out of cash, right? (laughs) So as a startup operator, I'm very sensitive to running out of cash. My basic belief is raise all the money you can when you're raising, but don't spend it according to the plan blindly. Spend it according to milestones. If the plan said hire 20 sales reps next year, but the existing 15 you have are struggling, don't go hire 20 more. Go back to the investors and say, we're waiting for a milestone. We're waiting for a signal from the business to trigger that spend. And if you do that, that money is going to last a long time and it will help offset that issue, right? Because you won't be out in the market in 12 to 18 months raising money because you raised more earlier and spent it wisely. It buys you more time. No, I do agree with that elongated runway and the benefits of doing so. I do want to discuss though, the state of play as we were talking there about kind of the fundraising more on the exit side then I want to focus on that state because we're seeing increasing prominence from the world of PE in 2017 there were 513 exits 499 were M&A with many being PE so it's becoming a real fixture in our space so to provide some context though when we chatted before you said to me there were two types of sale can I ask Dave what are those two types of sale for you in your mind? Yeah the two types of sale to me I mean and for most people I'd say it's a strategic exit to a strategic acquirer i.e. another software company or you have an exit to a private equity firm. And I would say those lines are blurring in two ways. One, PE firms, you know, 15 years ago, PE firms were really just what I call squeeze players. They'd show up and try and squeeze up EBITDA and sell you for an EBITDA multiple. But today you have much more growth-oriented PE firms. You you have PE platform roll-ups. If a software company owned by a PE firm buys you, the economics of that look much more like a strategic acquisition than a classical EBITDA squeeze. So that's why PE people are paying more money these days. It's why they're offering competitive bids to strategics because in many cases, they're rolling together software companies and the economics look more like strategic economics than classical private equity economics. Speaking of the buying and selling of companies, Dave, I I do have to ask, Josh Falser at Freestyle said on the show once, companies are sold and not bought and it's always stuck with me. Do you think that's right to you? And how do you think the kind of bought versus sold or sold versus bought debate? Yeah, I think it's quite funny because I was actually raised on the exact opposite adage, which is great companies are bought, not sold. (laughs) And and the intent of that was that if you hang a for sale sign on your company, you may not get the best price. That's the underlying philosophy there. In the real world, these things are blurry. They're not black and white. For example, you may have strategic inbound in in, in strategic outreach to your company that may trigger you to hire a banker to run a PE process. So so you tell me which that is. So I I think the other way to look at these two types of uh, exits, Harry, are a lot of people focus on how it ends. Did you get sold to strategic or sold to a PE? To me, it's equally interesting to look at how it starts. Did you just out of the blue decide to run a PE process? Or did you get strategic interest that either led to outreach to other strategics, right? Because at the end of the day, you're trying to create a a multiple bidder situation. And that's what's going to maximize value. So I always look at kind of how it ended, but I also look at how it started. Look, intelligently run PE process will generate a multi-bidder situation. That's the whole point of it. Just as an intelligently run strategic process will. You said about kind of looking at how it started. I do I do want to start at the beginning. It's a pretty opaque world, to be honest, and it's actually not one that we shine much light on. And so I do want to shine some light on it and provide some transparency state. When we chatted before in terms of the start, you said it starts with making the book. Can I ask, what does making the book really mean, David? What, what goes into the book? Sure. For example, if you decide to hire bankers and run a PE sale process, and you may decide that for a number of reasons, including strategic outreach, which says, hey, maybe it's a good time to sell, you will hire bankers and they 
they are going to want to make a book, quote unquote, formerly known as a SIM, a confidential information memorandum. That's a typical name for it. And that's going to be a hundred page or so PowerPoint presentation of mind numbing detail, <laughs> uh, lots and lots of numbers and the story behind the company and where it's going. In terms of the story behind the company, I am super interested. What's the differentiator between, say, a good book versus a bad book? If it's very numbers orientated and really very data orientated, what makes a good book versus a bad book? Sure. So first, a, a bad book, the number one sign of a bad book is, is the numbers don't foot. And that will be death because the PE people are super quantitative. And if you have errors in your numbers, that will undermine the credibility of the company. So while it's a rather basic item, it is absolutely essential that all the numbers foot. And a huge amount of energy is put in by the bankers on, on cleaning up your data, cleaning up your numbers, finding problems you didn't have to make sure that all the numbers foot. So I think a bad book, the numbers don't foot. And in a bad book, kind of the words don't go with the music, if you know what I mean, which is the words are telling a story that when you look at the numbers, it's not supported. And conversely, in a good book, the numbers are all correct. They all foot out very well. The book tells a story about the company and where it's going, and the words match the music. When you look at the numbers, they support that story. And that, to me, is what creates a good book. And you said about the numbers and why it's going. In terms of go-forward operating plans, I am interested because you've got to create an aggressive enough one to make it attractive to the buyer, but also not unrealistic. How do you think about doing this and creating that dynamic of excitement, but also realism within the buyer? Yeah, that's a great question, Harry. By the way, one thing you mentioned earlier about the books, you said that this is not a world where most people live in day to day. And I think that's true. So the very first thing I'd advise a CEO, if you're entering this process, is to get somebody to show you 10 books. That was the first thing I did. I said, I'm not going to build one of these without having seen 10 good ones. And that also helped me when we built our book and kind of triangulating and knowing what I thought a good book was versus a bad book. Now, back to your point, a key element of the book itself is the go forward operating plan. And just as in a fundraising, there's there's temptation to want to juice that up a little bit and make it a little bit more aggressive. The problem is that this process can take six to nine months, maybe longer, and you need to be making quarters. God help you if you're out marketing a book and you're missing the operating plan in it. And bear in mind, you mail a book out at the start of the process, right? So there could be a full six to nine months between when you first mail out the book and when you're closing the transaction. So I think one of the more difficult questions is to actually find that medium. And the answer to me is you need to be very comfortable that you're going to hit the numbers in that book. Because if you miss them, very bad things will happen. And there could be a lot of pressure on you to drive them up. But I think you need to basically hold the course and say, no, 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 no. This has to be a must-make plan. I do agree with you on the must-make plan. It does make me think, though, to a lot of questions that I get in terms of from kind of early-stage founders who have their first few sales reps. And they always say to me, Harry, I'm going through kind of quota setting and quota construction. How do I create an ambitious quota that they feel they can really reach, but also is a stretch, but also not too easy? When you sit down with a founder and advise them on that question, what do you advise them? That's a very tough question, particularly early on, Harry, because as you know, you don't have a lot of company-specific data to work with. So the, the best thing you can do in my mind is benchmark, look at other companies with a similar sales cycle and similar average sales price, and try and set the quotas as they would be set at those companies in their earlier state, because they may be a $100 million business today. You want to go back when you were a $5 million business, what were your quotas? And my belief for what it's worth on that issue is that being a sales rep at a very early stage startup, what you're talking about, is pretty hard 
hard job anyway. So I would tend to set quotas on the lower side. Far better to slightly overpay your sales force in the early days than to have everybody quit because they're not making money. The juicing up quotas is something you do later. Right? Basically, you start squeezing the sales force once you debug the sales model and you're scaling it and you care about the cost of scaling and CAC. In the early days, I mean, I always tell startups, don't set your prices too high and don't set your quotas too high because you don't want people not buying because of price because you're trying to prove product market fit and you're trying to optimize price. And don't set your quotas so high. Your salespeople don't make money because they're going to leave and then you have to rebuild your sales force. I think people also actually forget about the confidence element and the confidence that's derived from hitting your numbers consistently and how you can then slightly leverage up and up with the increasing confidence of the sales force as well. Yeah, that's true for the salespeople. It's true for the company as well. I remember when I started at MarkLogic, Mike Moritz of Sequoia came up to me and he was one of these kind of men of few words guys. And he said, I, you know, I have seven words of advice. Make a plan that you can beat. And I think it was great advice. And I've always stuck with that. And so many startups don't. But making a plan that you can beat, whether it be for a sales rep or the whole company, it gives you confidence because you can say you made your numbers. It gives you predictability on cash because cash is oxygen to a startup. So there's pure goodness in my mind in, in setting plans that you can beat and setting quotas that you can meet. Going back to the PE process, though, and as we said that, we've assembled the book now. The book looks great and we need to actually engage in the process. What does the next step look like? And how does the selection process for who to send the book to look like? Yeah, so this is a key role of the bankers, which is I was, and I think most people would be shocked by just how many different types of private equity firms there are out there that buy software companies. And I think if you wanted to mail a book to everyone, you would probably literally be mailing hundreds of books. If you say, let's only mail a book to people who buy mid-market SaaS companies between 30 and 70 million in revenue that are or are not profitable because that's a constraint where the check size is X, right? When you put those basic filters of kind of market, check size, profitability, I think you can easily mail out 50 to 75 books. And the bankers are going to know all that. They, they know who likes to write what size checks. They know who already owns potentially adjacent companies for roll-up opportunities. They know who not to call on because, because your check size is too small or too big. So there's a big part of value there brought by the bankers and knowing who to mail the book to. I think the other part of this is in a good process, you're not just mailing the book to private equity sponsors, as they're often called. You're mailing them to strategics because strategics can take a long time to get going. I mean, in fact, there's an argument. You mail it to strategics first because corporate processes being corporate processes, they take a long time. And one of the goals of your PE sales process is to try and force a strategic to move because they know a sale is imminent. Because a lot of times, look, I've been on the buy side of this for years. At Business Objects, we looked at buying companies two, three times over four-year periods. There has to be some compelling event to make you want to move. And if a banker calls up and says, company XYZ is in play, that might be enough. So that's the other dance the bankers are trying to do. They're trying to run this kind of linear funnel PE process against PE people who, who don't want to be in it, right? Because they know the goal is to set up a multi-bidder situation. And they're also smart people and trying to avoid that happening. So there's a lot of complexity there. And then you're also overlaid on that, trying to get strategics involved in a timeline that works with corporate timelines and to try and force people who've been kind of watching from the seats to, to jump down on the playing field. 
I am fascinated. You said there about the depth of the PE world. What, what other thing was most surprising to you that you maybe didn't know before entering the process as to the structure, the depth, and the PE world itself that most surprised you? The thing probably that most surprised me was that in many cases, certainly not all, when a PE acquirer buys a software company, they will typically ask management to roll in a portion of their proceeds if the management team is staying on. And I'd not heard of that before. Maybe other people knew about it. But I remember in one of the meetings, they asked us, they go, what percent of your proceeds do you want to roll over? And we're like, what, what's rollover? <laughs> to be fair, we kind of should have been prepped on the issue, but I don't say it's a majority of them. And I've seen some PE surveys that talk about the percent that do roll over. But in some situations, the PE firm, and I'd say this is really more in a family-owned business situation, perhaps, but they like when the existing investors, when they keep the team, they want some existing investors to roll money into the new entity. And that was an entirely new concept to me because I thought when Strategic buys a company, it's bought. And I figured with a PE firm, it was the same thing that like when they bought the company, they literally squeezed out every other investor and it was hundred percent theirs. I have to say, I've never heard of a rollover. So have no fear, Dave, you're not alone in that one. In terms of the next steps, though, when we chatted before, you said to me, this is when you get the IOIs back in. I have to admit, I don't know what an IOI is. So what is an IOI and how does it play into the process as the next step? Sure. So, so once you mail out your SIMS or your book, the PE firms are going to study it. There's certainly no lack of data in there to study. You're also going to set up a data room where there's actually more data where they can look at the SIM. They can look at additional data, obviously all under NDA. And they can build their models. And, and at some point, you set a deadline that says, look, if you're interested in acquiring the company, you need to submit an indication of interest, an IOI, which is a two-page letter. And we're going to outline the things that need to be in there. First and foremost, some sort of price range. How much are you thinking of paying for the company. Second, perhaps a strategic rationale. What are you thinking of doing with it? You're going to roll it into another company? Are you going to try and grow it? You're going to try and juice up EBITDA? What, what is kind of the high-level plan? What are your intentions for management? Are you going to fire them all? Are you going to keep them? And there might be, uh, what's your source of funds? So it's coming from PE firm name Fund 7, which has $1.2 billion in capital. So, you know, I want to say six to 12 questions that get answered in a two-page letter. That's what the IOI is, and that's the, the, that's the milestone that you cross. The Books get mailed out, you set a deadline, then the IOIs come back in. Okay, so the IOIs come back in. In terms of the selection of the IOIs, do you go for management meetings with all of those that send back IOIs? Do you select them very rigorously? What does that process look like as to once they're back in with you? Yeah, that was funny, Eric, because my, my assumption was, yes, I, hey, anybody who's interested, I'm going to go meet with them. It's the salesman in me. But the bankers were kind of resolute that, no, you don't do that. If you get a good number of IOIs, as we did, then you're going to pick who you meet with because these meetings take time and they take a lot of time, not just for the CEO, but the whole exec team. Typically, a management meeting, which is what happens after an IOI, might be four to six hours of either most or all of the executive staff. And there might be more than one of those meetings. So there might be two to three, four to six hour meetings per IOI. You know, if you get 10 IOIs, you can't keep running your business and do all those meetings. So the bankers will work with you and the board to filter which ones. Uh, Some of it's based on price. I think probably at that phase, a lot of it is based on price. Some of it is based on certainty. Uh, we'll talk about that more later. Certainty comes into the equation at the end. But you can develop a feeling pretty quickly from talking to people how much homework they've done. And this was something else I learned in the process, Harry, that you're actually trying very hard to figure out how much homework the other parties are doing because at the end of the process, that's going to give you an indication of certainty. Because if somebody goes up with a nice offer, but they haven't done their homework, and like, oh, we got to do customer references. We haven't built a financial model. We didn't do diligence of the contracts. It's like, wait a minute, you've not done your homework. Whereas if somebody else shows up and is completely 
completely fluent in every number you've posted and done all those other things, you're like, wow, party B here is much more serious than party A. I mean, absolutely in terms of that prep. And it's relatively similar to VC in that perspective. I, I, what I unpack, just two elements say, you mentioned the time commitment for the team. And this is a tough one. How on earth are you meant to hit the ambitious targets that you set in the go forward operating plan whilst you are committing such a large amount of your time to fundraising? Often startups don't hit their numbers when fundraising and it's to be accepted given the time they're given to the fundraise itself. Is that the same in PE? And and, and how does that look? Because you can't hit the numbers when you're selling the company like that, can you? Yeah, a friend of mine has a, a kind of somewhat tongue-in-cheek VC fundraising process. And it's like a 13-step VC fundraising process. And step 13 is blame the quarterly miss on the fundraise. <laughs> That's how much it happens in VC land. In PE land, you can't miss these quarters. So like I said, Harry, earlier, this is why you need to put real thought into what plan you're signing up for. And it's a really good point. You need to be aware of the fact that you and the team are going to be out a lot. I think in my experience, we had a very strong sales management team, so they could keep running the company and hitting the quarters. If you didn't, that's going to be a real factor. And it's probably going to make you limit the number of IOIs you pursue or the number of management meetings you have because you simply can't risk missing a quarter. Got it. No, absolutely. And I get it on the need to continuously hit a quarter. The second element that we said there was in terms of kind of the selection. And my question is, to what extent does brand play a role in P selection of IOIs? Like in venture, the brands are hailed and often tier ones are selected over others. Does brand play the same role in PE? I agree with you on venture. In PE, I don't think it does. Because in VC, there's a lot of halo effects associated with who raised your money. If you raise money from a top tier firm, you're in your A round, your B round will be easier. A lot of the top tier firms have marketing departments that help market your company and talk it up in the market. So, so there's kind of both tangible and intangible benefits of raising from an A tier firm, uh, which in many cases in VC land will allow them to offer a lower valuation than the B tier firm. In this particular case, you're selling the whole company. So you're not really worried about those add-on effects, right? Your existing investors are primarily worried about their return on investment. So, you know, if you're a VC-backed company selling to a PE sponsor, price is going to be a huge part of the equation. And the other part of the equation will certainly not be brand. It will be certainty. At the end of the process, two things you're thinking about is I have a number of parties offering different prices. Is anybody going to try and retrade that price? They're going to be like, who do I trust? And maybe this is where brand comes into it, Harry. I'd say almost more reputation than brand, but some PE buyers have reputations for trying to niggle down the price at the end of the process. You say, hey, we did a customer reference check and it didn't come out well, so we want to take some money off. Or you can pick up any excuse you want. The stock market's down a bunch, so we want to take some money off. Oh, the CFO wants to quit. We didn't know that. We have to hire a new CFO. We thought we were buying a fully functioned management team. Right? You can kind of create excuses to try and quote unquote retrade the price at the end. And certainly boards are sensitive to that. So I think I'm going to say that reputation matters a lot. I wouldn't go so far as to say it's brand because it's reputation and specifically around are these people who try to retrade a deal or is it more like it is in the VC world, my, my word is my bond. No, I totally get you in terms of my word is my bond. Can I ask, in the meetings themselves, I'm a big fan in terms of VC fundraisings for really great founder experiences and making that as high quality as possible and building that trust. Is that the same sort of softer intangibles that one focuses on in these meetings or is it much more transactional and data orientated with less trust building built into it. Yeah, I mean, I think, Harry, I'm going to give you a slightly unusual answer to this question, but I think you're hitting on what I would call the philosophical difference between PE and VC. Look, the philosophy of VC is you are a founder. We want to be your partner in helping you build your company, and a lot of value is going to get created by that. 
That's kind of the VC philosophy in a nutshell. The PE philosophy is very different. We are a financial investor buying the company, hoping to either grow it or make it more profitable or roll it into another business. We are hoping to get a three three x return in four to six years. Typical PE math. So it's not really about we're your partner in building a business. It's about we're here to get a return. So so I would say the dialogue is much more about the operating plan, the growth, the opportunity. Can we grow this thing? Because the other thing that's different in PE is there's much less margin for error, right? In VC, you can have five or six companies in a portfolio fail because the math works to offset that. In PE, these guys are only looking for a 3x cash on cash multiple. So you can't have four of them fail. They, they all better deliver that multiple. So I think there's a big philosophy difference. The other thing I'll say, Harry, is that the way you can most see it with a concrete example is stock options. On the VC side, the philosophy is you get shares in the company for making a contribution to the company. You can exercise your shares. You can leave the company and keep the shares you've exercised. On the PE side, it's typically a five-year vest over a four-year vest. It's typically performance-based vesting. Like you get your vesting if I get a 3x multiple, right? So the philosophy on the PE side is very much you make money only if and when I make money. So it's different. And I, and I think for anybody either looking at a job at a PE company or, or entertaining selling to and staying on with a PE company, the biggest, most tangible difference you'll see is on how the equity works. Absolutely fascinating listening to this. And as I said, the first time I've discussed this, so I'm learning a huge amount here, Dave. But I do want to discuss, as we touched on being price being such an important element, in terms of price math around PE, during our conversation earlier, you said PE math is pretty simple. What is PE math then for this process? And what are the expected hold periods for PE and how does that factor in? Sure. I think, and I got to be careful here because like I said earlier, there's really kind of two types of PE. There's the more growth-oriented, strategic-oriented PE, and their math is going to look a lot like a strategic acquirer, right? They're going to be looking for cost synergies. They're going to be looking for, can they drop your product in their Salesforce's bag and increase quotas? And that kind of math will tend to result in higher multiples than just classic profitability math. So I think if it's a strategic PE firm, you can see anything from a normal PE multiple up to what I'd say is a good strategic multiple. Now, for the classical PE, the EBITDA squeezer, and if you run this process, you will definitely bump into some of them. Their math is pretty simple. They want to hold the company four to six years. They want to get a 3x return, and they're probably modeling around selling the company for 16x EBITDA. And if you know those three facts, you can actually build their financial model. And then you can understand what they can afford to pay and what they can afford not to pay based on that math. So I'd say that's the classical EBITDA squeeze math, the EBITDA play. Uh, the strategic math is, is really much more variable. Dave, uh, as, as I said, uh, and as I said at the beginning, uh, I could uh, continue these conversations for hours, which makes me rue the time setting that I put on the podcast. But I do want to move into my favorite element being the quick fire round, the 60 seconds faster. Are you ready to dive in? 60 seconds per one. Let's go, Harry. Okay, so what do you know now about the process that you wish you'd known at the very beginning? The importance of timing the strategics relative to the private equity sponsors. What's the biggest misconception of the world of PE, Dave? That they won't pay a high multiple. Burn rate is a function of the personality of the CEO. Jason tweeted it the other day. I'm intrigued. Do you agree, disagree? What are your thoughts? 
I agree. I've always thought that profitability was more of a decision than a built-in assumption. That goes all the way back to my days of business objects. We had decided to be profitable. Other competitors had not decided to be profitable. So uh, I agree. It's not entirely, but boy, it's it's pretty correlated. And then the final one that I want to learn from you on, and it's uh, you've sat on boards, both on the board member side and then on the operator side. What advice would you give me having just joined my first board? I think the answer is ask questions. Don't make statements. Because I think... It, I have a little rule, Harry, which is whenever a board member gives a CEO directive feedback, it's never good because if they thought it was a good idea, they were going to do it anyway. So you didn't have to direct them. So the only case in which they're doing it is they thought it was a bad idea. So to me, never give directions to a CEO, challenge them, ask them questions, make them think, but try to avoid sentences like, I think you guys should do blah, because whether you realize it or not, you've just given directive feedback and they're thinking, oh gosh, is Harry going to be mad if we don't do blah? No, I couldn't agree more in terms of not giving that directive. But Dave, as I said to you at the beginning, I always love having you on the show. And I'd love to do a second one, as we said, on the next element that we discussed earlier. So thank you so much for joining me again today, Dave. And it's been such a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Harry. Thanks for having me. What can I say? Such a huge pleasure to have Dave on the show for a very special round two there. And if you'd like to see more from Dave, you can on Twitter at Kelblog. I do also want to say a huge thank you to Dave personally. He's always been there to support and help me, and I really do so appreciate that. It would also be awesome to welcome you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. But before we leave you today, what makes people love the brands they love? In a word, connection. And social media is where they look for that connection. Well, Sprout Social gives businesses a unified solution to find, engage with, and nurture their audiences through social. In one intuitive platform, see and respond to every message, join the conversations happening around your brand, and turn rich social data into actionable insights. More than 25,000 organizations around the globe use Sprout to create real connection. Join them and learn more about the true value of social at SproutSocial.com. And speaking about the power and importance of connection, I want to talk about Sapling, the new people operations platform taking the community by storm. Hundreds of companies, including Envision, Cruise, Kayak, and DigitalOcean are raving about Sapling and its ability to streamline HR, create a red carpet employee experience, and empower people operations teams with the connectivity, data, and insights to improve employee happiness, productivity, and turnover. And best yet, listeners of Sasta Podcast get three months of Sapling free whilst this offer lasts. So if you're tired of wasting time managing HR in spreadsheets and repetitive manual workflows, or if you're just wishing you have one system to manage your global workforce, head on over to saplinghr.com slash Sasta to sign up and see why leading teams are making the switch. That's saplinghr.com forward slash Sasta and start empowering your talent to reach their potential through the power of automation, connectivity, and talent insights powered through Sapling today. And last but not least, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini-series to get their best advice on achieving success. This time we'll hear from Justin Goodhue, founder and CEO at Trellis. Trellis is an event management platform for charities and non-profits. Trellis enables event organizers to easily build beautiful event and fundraising pages to sell tickets, collect donations, and automate their workflows. Hi, Harry. When you build out your product, you should just know that it's going to take twice as long as you think. And you might be shaking your head right now disagreeing with me, but I guarantee you the first time you do it, it's going to take you twice as long. That list of features, just cut it in half. Cut it in half again. Find out exactly what it is your customer wants and just build that. The other stuff, they can wait. So make sure you give yourself the extra time, money, and runway to be successful. 
Thank you, Justin. Taking the time needed is important to make sure you grow. You can also find growth with the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I cannot thank you enough for your support. It really means the world to me and I can't wait to bring you a fantastic episode next week.